Father, thank you for your word tonight. And the Lord, it's the word of God. We approach with trembling hearts the word of God. This is your word, Lord, spoken and preserved through the ages so that we would have it tonight, so that our faith could be built up, so that we could learn your ways. And Lord, so that we could be sanctified in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. Now, Lord, speak to us. Guard our hearts, fill our minds, renew our minds. In Jesus' name, can you pray with me, church, and say, Lord, renew my mind tonight. For this is the word of God, and I receive it in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell them it's going to be good tonight. Get ready. Amen. It's always an incredible thought to me that I'm teaching you know, those that are here tonight, but then it goes out all over the country and eventually into 108 nations in the world. That's just a staggering thought. I'm thankful for that. But now last time we ended with Peter's explanation for how we got the word of God. And let me just repeat it because we never forget this. This is how we have the Holy Bible you hold in your hand. Holy men of God spoke as they were moved or borne along by the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So as we learned last week, the Bible is, is not from man. It's not of man. It's not from man's imaginations. It's not something man cooked up. It's not a cleverly devised fable, as Peter put it. But this is the very word of God through his Holy Spirit moving on holy men of God who sat down with pen in hand, and as they began to write, the Holy Spirit bore them along and led them in what they wrote. Now, chapter 1 was about faith's convictions, or the deep convictions that we have regarding our faith in Jesus Christ. And as we begin chapter 2, we're going to begin to explore, as I said, faith's contentions. What is faith? Contend, that is the faith that is in Jesus. What does it contend? Peter is going to deal with those who are denying the faith, and he's going to get so serious here tonight. Um, He deals first with the doctrine of certain heretics. Then he tackles their doom. Finally, he exposes their deeds. So their doctrine, their doom, and their deeds. He's going to deal with that in chapter 2. Now, he begins with the lying message of heretics, or what we would also call apostates, or those who have denied the faith. Look at verse 1, chapter 2, 2 Peter. But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you. Everybody say, will be. He didn't say, maybe, perhaps so. He said, there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. So heretics bring heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and they bring on themselves swift destruction. Now, a false prophet is somebody, essentially, who proclaims a lying message he claims to have received from God. That's a false prophet. I'm speaking, and these are the words of God when in fact they're not the words of God. They didn't didn't get them from God. But a false prophet says, I got this from God, and so I'm telling you what God says. Happens all the time. Okay? Peter is looking back 
to the false prophets who plagued God's people in Old Testament times. And he's going to do that a lot in 2 Peter chapter 2. He's going to look back. He, he goes back to Old Testament days to give us sort of a context and a, and a reference point or a template for what's happening now in New Testament times. I'll give you some examples of Old Testament false prophets. Jeremiah complained to God. Jeremiah locked horns with false prophets all the time. If you read the book of Jeremiah, which I love, I've read through the book of Jeremiah many times, it speaks to me so plainly. And over and over again, almost every chapter, he's dealing with false prophets who are telling the people, hey, everything's okay. You're not going to be carried off to Babylon. God's not bringing judgment on you. Peace, peace. And Jeremiah would face them, confront them, eyeball to eyeball and say, you're a liar, you're a false prophet. God did not speak that to you. Let me give you an example. Jeremiah complained to God about the prophets who speak falsely. And then here was the sticker, my people love to have it so. The false prophets flourished because the people wanted to hear false prophecy. That goes on today as well. Elijah was challenged by 450 false prophets of Baal. He ended up executing every one of them. But there were 450 just in that one story where he called fire down from heaven. In that one event, there were 450 false prophets in the land of Israel. Isaiah spoke about how God's backslidden people said to the true prophets these words, quote, don't prophesy to us right things, Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy deceits. So once again, you had false prophets flourishing because God's people wanted false prophecy. They wanted smooth things. Tell us things that tickle our ears. Tell us things that are easy on our flesh. Tell us things that are nice to hear. Don't tell us judgment's coming. Don't tell us that God's going to make us answer for our sins. Don't tell us any of that. Speak smooth things. Does that ring a bell with any of you? Well, that goes on all the time today. Peter says that just as they had false prophets in those times, there will be false teachers among you. False teachers, as opposed to false prophets, are those who deliberately and knowingly distort or deny the truth of God. They take the Bible, they take the scriptures. Usually a false teacher builds a mountain out of a molehill. That is, they, they, they formulate a major doctrine out of one or two pet verses. I could give examples, but I'm not going to because I don't want to sound like I'm attacking somebody. But false teachers generally take a truth and stretch it to an extreme where it becomes heresy. So that's a false teacher. They, they distort the word. They don't teach the word as God meant for it to be taught. Now, there's two fancy words, and let me tell them to you. Here's the way you interpret the Bible. There's two ways you can do it. Eisegete or exegete. Now, let me tell you what I mean. Eisegete means you read into the text what you want it to say. That goes on all the time. Oh, I'm telling you, I've heard it so many times in my life. That's eisegesis. When you read into, you got a teacher up there. And he really wishes that the Bible said this or that about this or that. Money, sex, well, I don't know, 
whatever you want to come up, any, any relevant matter. They want it to say a certain thing. So they read into Bible verses what they want them to say, not what they actually say. That's an eisegete. Exegete, or an ex, when you exegete or you do exegesis, that means you pull out of the word what God intended for it to say. That's the calling and the job of any true Bible teacher. See, I'm not up here to teach you what I want it to say. I'm up here to teach you what God intended for it to say. So it's my job to learn how to interpret Scripture, and there's all kinds of rules of interpretation. We call it hermeneutics. And, oh, there's been so many times I've heard people teaching or preaching that I I go, oh, I wish they would take a hermeneutics class and learn how to interpret. Because... You do, there are rules of interpretation, context, a text without a context is a pretext and all kinds of things. But the bottom line is this, an eisegete reads into it what it doesn't say, an exegete pulls out of it what it does say. Amen? So a false teacher is almost always an eisegete. He's, he's reading into the Bible, he's reading Bible verses but he's telling you that they mean one thing when they mean something entirely different. Amen? I'll give you one, for instance, that I heard a long, long time ago. Uh, there was a man uh, that I was kind of dealing with in a Bible study I was teaching way back decades ago. And he was involved in an immoral lifestyle. And so when I confronted him about it, because he was kind of pulling some shenanigans in the, in the group that I was teaching... He said, but Jeff, don't you know that to the pure, all things are pure? Now, that's a Bible verse. Hello? So he's telling me, since I'm pure or washed in the blood of the Lamb, anything I do is pure. Everybody say, eh. But you know what that was? That was eisegesis. He's reading into it what he wished it said. But he wasn't reading, taking out of it what God meant for it to say. Are you with me? And I can show you a thousand examples of like that. Now, Jesus warned, they may say, praise the Lord. They may say, I love Jesus. But Peter said they secretly introduced destructive heresies. They creep into the church beneath the radar. Hallelujah this, praise the Lord that, kumbaya this. But they bring in a false teaching, a false doctrine. It's usually, listen to me, church, usually 90% of what they say is true. It's that 10% that gets you in trouble. See, they're not going to get up and just say something completely crazy insane because you'd walk out. So they'll quote Bible verses. And the Bible verses are Bible verses. And you know they're Bible verses and they quote them. Yeah, well, that's true and that's true and that's true and that's true. But then when they've got you going, oh, well, they're, they're good, they're good. They introduce the destructive heresy. They say that one thing that isn't true, but there's so much that is true. You know what I did one time on a Wednesday night? I brought a blender. I had a blender, and I brought bluebell ice cream, and I brought chocolate syrup, and I brought fruit, and I set the blender up in front of everybody. And I filled this thing with the bluebell ice cream and the fruit and the chocolate syrup, and I hit liquefy. And I created this incredible shake. I'm making some of you wish you could go right now and find one, aren't you? <laughs> now, here's what I did. I said, 
and when I was done, here it is, this beautiful milkshake. I got, how many of you would drink this? Oh, I'll drink it, I'll drink it. But then I got a little piece of chocolate and I said, I said, this is doggy do. I mean, little. And I dropped it in and hit liquefy. Now, that was chocolate, but I was just making fun. And in it went. And I said, now who will drink it? No, I'm not touching that. I said, but wait a minute. The vast majority of it is a great shake. Why would you not still drink it? Because a little bit spoils the whole thing. And it's that way with heresy. How many of you, were anybody there? Were you, were you there? Anybody there? I, I should do that again. Man, did I have their attention when I brought out the milkshake? I mean, I had their attention. Now, Jesus warned, you'll know them by their fruit, the fruit of their doctrine, the outcome of their teaching, including how they conduct their own personal lives. So you know what that means? That means you've got to judge. And it's okay to judge. It's okay to pick fruit. It's okay to look at somebody's life who's teaching or preaching, and you've got questions about what they're saying. Jesus said, check out their fruit. You'll know them by their fruit. If it's good or bad, if it brings forth good fruit or bad fruit, if it affects people positively or negatively, if they grow in the faith or they don't grow in the faith, if they get confused or they get peace, you'll know them by their fruit. First, the root. Then the fruit. If the root is bad, the fruit is bad. These things were happening in the early church. As early as the early church, there were false teachers and false prophets all over the place. As we've already stated, catch this. 2 Corinthians, 2 Thessalonians, 2 Timothy, and 2 John were all written to counter false doctrine. And the church had hardly gotten off the ground. And four letters are having to, be, having to be written about false doctrine, countering it, confronting it, explaining it, tearing it down, exposing it. And that was when the church was 50, 60 years in existence, not 2,100. Let me give you some examples. There were the Gnostics. And all you need to know about the Gnostics is they taught that Jesus had not really come in the flesh. Well, that destroyed the deity of Jesus Christ. That destroyed the immaculate conception. That destroyed who Jesus was. There were the Judaizers who taught that you had to mix Old Testament legalism with New Testament faith in order to be saved. Paul called their message another gospel. Not my gospel, not the gospel of Jesus, but another one. Peter says that they literally, these false teachers, deny the Lord that bought them. And that's what That's what Gnostics did. They denied the Lord. Okay? They forsake the simplicity that is in Christ, which is simply salvation by grace through faith and nothing more. That's the simplicity that's in Jesus. It goes without saying, many false teachers and false doctrines abound today. Now, let me give you some examples. There's a ramp, there there is rampant liberal theology. And what does liberal theology teach? It denies every foundational doctrine of Scripture and reduces Jesus to just a good teacher. Oh, he was a good teacher. But that's, it stops there. He was a good teacher, a good man. Really inspirational personality that Jesus 
Boy, he was really something. Good guy. But they totally deny the lordship and godhood and deity of Jesus. That's liberal theology. There are seminaries you could go to all over America. You're sitting in a seminary class and you think you're going to have your faith built so you can one day be turned, turned out with a degree and preach. And you'll have a professor get up there and say, now, Jesus was a good man. But, but it ends there. You're in a seminary and you're hearing this. Jesus was a good man, but it kind of stops there. And the Bible, well, you know, there's all kinds of problems with the Bible. It's not really actually the word of God. And you'll hear things like this in seminaries. There are the Jehovah's Witnesses who deny the Trinity. They deny hell. They deny the deity of Christ. And they deny his bodily resurrection. That's Jehovah's Witnesses. There's Mormonism which teaches the old lie of the devil, you shall be as gods. And I got to go here. Even Catholicism teaches many false doctrines. Let's start with exalting the Virgin Mary to the level of co-redemptrix, meaning she's a co-redeemer with Christ. You pray to Mary. Mary hears your prayers. No, she does not. And she can't answer anything. How about this one? They claim that a priest can change a wafer into the body, blood, soul, and divinity of the Lord Jesus. So, so Catholics all around the world are taught that all over the world, millions and millions of wafers every Sunday turn into the actual blood and body of Jesus. And then you eat it. They offer, if the price is right, to get people out of a mythical place called purgatory when there is no such place called purgatory. Not picking on anybody, but, but I'm not here to read into it what I want it to say. I'm here to tell you what I believe God wanted it to say, okay? So next, Peter turns to their moral lives. All right, verse 2. Many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. So the there here is the false teachers and false prophets again. They, many will follow. Everybody say many. So they're going to get a lot of followers. False teachers and false prophets are going to get a lot of followers than they have today, folks. I've seen thousands and tens of thousands of people chase after false teaching. And because of the false teachers, the way of truth is going to be blasphemed. Now, the word destructive here is from a word meaning pernicious. And pernicious points to a person who has abandoned all moral restraint and revels in indecent behavior. Ring a bell? Do we see people reveling in indecent behavior today? Have you ever asked yourself, let me give you two questions. Have you ever said, where has shame gone? Or how about this one? Where has the ability to blush gone? Yeah, it's gone. It's not in America. Rarely do you see anybody blush. Or, or experience shame out there in that world? Well, that's what pernicious means. All moral restraint, when, when, a, when a nation or a person has drifted from, far from God, these false teachers and those that follow them and people that really walk away from the truth, eventually abandon moral restraint. And they revel in indecent behavior. It's happening Everywhere in America now, this describes, as I wrote here, much of modern-day America. Peter says that these shameless apostate teachers will not only involve themselves in this kind of behavior, but they will soon 
endorse, catch this, as normal the foul and filthy, most foul and filthy lifestyles imaginable. Not only will they do it, but they will endorse it as normal. He's talking about when evil becomes good and good becomes evil and light becomes dark and dark becomes light and we put sweet for bitter and bitter for sweet. When up is down and down is up and we don't know what we're doing anymore. We've lost our moral compass. That's what happens. That's what happens here under these false teachers and false philosophy and theology when it covers a nation, a church, a people, a home. Look what Paul wrote in Romans 1. Who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. And approve means heartily, enthusiastically endorse those who practice them. Is that happening in America today? Yeah. See, you got to go to the Word of God to, to get your compass right and see where we really are as a nation, as a people. Right? Now, next, Peter focuses on their motive. What's the motive of these false teachers? What are they after? Look at verse 3. By covetousness, they will exploit you with feigned words. Covetous means a craving to have more. If you covet, you see somebody, well, I passed a beautiful Corvette on the way here. I'm telling you, I started to covet. This thing was brand new. It still had the, the new plate on the back. This thing, oh my gosh. And you could see the guy behind the wheel. He's, he's driving like this. You know, he's cool. And, and I could tell he's an older guy who finally got his dream car. And I looked at that car and, and something in me almost craved to have more. But I thought, no, I'm content with what I've got driving in the rain, headed to church to preach the word of God. I'm good. Amen. All right? But now... <laughs> But the idea with covetousness is, is that these false teachers are in it for the money. That's what he's telling us, literally. There's no other way around it. And the word feigned, with feigned words, with feigned words is how they speak. It's from the Greek word plastos, from which we get the word plastic. And it means the words they speak are fabricated or molded or craftily fashioned to deceive people in order to get their money, honey. They're after your money. They're after your money. Isn't it funny how there's nothing new under the sun? There is nothing new under the sun. So he's essentially describing spiritual con men. They're in it for the money. That's what they want. Now, if you're listening to somebody, and, and they're supposed to be a Bible teacher. Now, if somebody is supposed to be teaching on money, like we do Financial Peace University, well, we expect the teacher to teach about money. But... If somebody's supposed to be teaching the Bible and you listen to them over and over again and all you ever hear is money this, money that, send me your money, give me your money, sow your seed my way and God will give you a hundredfold, all these promises that come attached to it, and, and all they're about, if you, if you listen to all their messages, almost all of them finally land on money, then something inside of you needs to go boop, 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 boop. These false teachers will invade the church. Amen. They want to get your money. And that's as old as the church is old. Back to the Catholics just for a minute. 
Way back in the Middle Ages, I'll give you an example here. Um, in the Middle Ages, the Catholic Church became so powerful that they also ruled politically. They would appoint kings. Uh, you know, if you, if you were going to be a king, you wanted the blessing of the Catholic Church. Uh, they, they were extremely powerful. The Pope was considered inerrant. He, whatever he said, that was gospel. The common people could not have the word of God. But they had huge building programs they needed done. They wanted to build huge cathedrals. Well, how are we going to get the money? So they came up with purgatory and indulgences. And indulgences where you, they would send priests into these little, this was in Europe mainly, so the, they would send uh, their priests into these little uh, towns, these little hamlets, these, these little villages in Germany and throughout Europe, and, and th- they were very good at, with feigned words, words craftily fashioned to deceive people in order to get their money. They were very good at it. So one of them was named Johann Tetzel. And he was the king of indulgence receivers. And here's what it was. He had a little tin cup. And he would go into these little villages and go to the village square and he'd start speaking. He'd say, all right, all of you good Catholics, all you Christians, uh, some of your loved ones who have died, they're in purgatory. They're suffering in purgatory. But if you will give into this cup, as soon as the coins clang in the bottom of this cup, your loved ones are coming out of purgatory. Well, these poor, ignorant German or European people would, oh, my Lord, i got to get Aunt Susie out of there. i got to get Joe out of there. i gotta get, I got to get whoever. I've got to get my aunt, my mother, my deceased wife. i got to get them out of purgatory. So they would throw the money in these cups. And that is how they raised huge sums to build the cathedral. Zzz, plural. Now, that's not the only example. But do you know that that's what set Martin Luther off, where he started the Reformation, when he saw this kind of thing, feigned words designed to get people's money? But now the same things happen. It's just a different spiel. It's different scams or different false promises or whatever. you got to be discerning. Everybody say discerning tonight. you you got to don't be gullible. Be discerning. All right. Now, next, Peter illustrates God's willingness to judge By pointing out, oh, I I missed something, backing up. In the second half of verse 3, he addresses the doom of these heretics, these false teachers. Look at verse 3, the second half. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. So their eventual downfall is assured. Judgment is at the door. Though it seems like nothing will ever happen to them, they seem to get away with everything, their judgment uh, looks like it's slumbering or has gone to sleep. God's not noticing. God doesn't care. He's just going to let him get away with it. You can do anything you want and get away with it, but that's a lie. Amen. Because as certain as the rising of the sun, they're going to come under the judgment of God. That is when Peter shifts gears and he said, let me show you how willing God is to judge and how he will certainly judge sin without a doubt. Now, what I'm about to teach, you won't hear in many churches anymore. They won't talk about judgment. But i got to take from the text what God intended for us to get out of it, and I'm not going to read into it something that's not there. So here we go. Verse 4. He starts with the angels, certain angels that sinned. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and deliver them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. 
Wow, these are somber verses. See, folks, sin didn't begin on earth with Adam and Eve. It didn't begin here. It began in heaven with Lucifer and his angels. And the very first sin that ever darkened God's universe was pride. Satan was lifted up. And he said, I'm going to ascend. And I'm going to become like the most high God. Pride. He was taken with his own beauty and his own power. And he was filled with pride. And the Bible says that when he rebelled against God, uh, a third of the angels rebelled with him. When Satan fell, he carried down with him a third of the heavenly host. Revelations 12, verse 4, his, that is Satan's, tail drew a third of the stars of heaven. That's angels, angelos, angels is the word, and threw them to the earth. Then Jesus said in Luke 10, 18, he said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven because Jesus was in eternity before he ever came here. And when Satan was judged, Jesus was there. And Jesus saw it. And he saw Satan cast from heaven like a lightning bolt. He watched it. When Satan was cast down, Lucifer became Satan. Lucifer was a positive name. Light bearer. But he became Satan when he was cast down. And the fallen angels became demons. Their current sphere of activity is our planet. They actively hold our world in bondage. John writes the whole world. Everybody say the whole world. That means every nation, every city, every town, the whole world lies under the sway or the authority or the power of the wicked one. These fallen angels work ceaselessly to hinder God's purposes on earth. And they harbor great hatred for the Jewish people and the Lord's church, you and me. So that's where warfare comes in. You, you build a church in a city, and that city is lying under the sway and the authority of the devil. Amen. So you begin to pray, and you begin to preach, and you begin to bind, and you begin to loose. Yeah. And, you, and Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against an advancing church. Amen. But the reason it's always a warfare is because of these fallen angels. And their master, Satan. Now there's a second group of fallen angels who had a second or a further fall. Jude tells us about them. He says, and the angels which kept not their first estate. Now he is distinguishing the first fallen angels. He is distinguishing them from these angels. Pay close attention. These are unique. The angels which kept not their first estate, which means their own principality, but left where God had consigned them, but they left their own habitation. He has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness under, unto the judgment of the great day. Now, the run-of-the-mill demon is not in this place. They're roaming. Remember what the devil said to God in the book of Job? God said to the devil, where have you been? He said, I've been roaming around in the earth, going to and fro in the earth. And that's what the devil and his demons do. But these are different. These are angels who did something different. And they're in a unique holding tank, as it were, awaiting the judgment of the great day. Now, both Peter and Jude talked about them. And they compare 
them to the sin of Sodom. And the sin of Sodom is summed up as those who went after strange flesh. That means flesh of, a, of another kind. That's what it means. So, because, here's the deal, shooting straight with you, God never intended men to, to lust after men. That's going after strange flesh. Or women to women, that's strange flesh. And that's what they call it here in the Bible, Peter and Jude. Going after these, these angels, it was unnatural for men to do it. And now in pursuit of an alien desire, these angels that are now being held in this unique place did what was unnatural to them in that they lusted after human women. They went after flesh of another kind. They went after a being of another kind. And in pursuit of this alien desire, they violated the order of their being and they brought down upon themselves a a unique wrath from God. Peter says their final judgment is on its way. In the meantime, God has incarcerated these twice fallen angels to put a stop to the incalculable damage they would do if they were free. Tony, you come to church on Wednesday night, you're going to learn some things. Amen? Amen? Amen. You're going to learn some things. So God judged angels. Everybody say God judged angels. Peter is, is letting us know, hey, he judged them, so you think he won't judge you? But he goes on. Next, Peter focuses on God's judgment of Noah's generation. Verse 5, and God did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. Now, now the Bible is clear as to why God brought the great flood in Noah's time. Genesis 6 says this about human beings in the days of Noah. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only, everybody say only, only evil, continually Mankind had sunk so incredibly low that not once did a good, wholesome, righteous thought ever enter into his mind. How many of you have ever been driving down the road or just sitting somewhere and all of a sudden some really bad thought just shot through your head? Come on. Let's see how many tell the truth in church. All right. But you went, wow, that's a terrible thought. And you rebuked it and you got your mind back on good things. They were the opposite. They never had even once a good thought shoot through a wicked mind. That's that's only evil continually. And he went on to say also their motivations. The reason they did anything they did had an evil motive. You would have had better luck flying over the ocean and throwing a coin into the depths than returning to try to find it than you would have had finding one righteous thought in the minds of the people of Noah's day. They were wicked. They were were totally fallen, totally corrupted. The Bible says the whole earth was corrupted before God, and the Bible also says the whole earth was filled with violence. So there was rampant bloodshed, universal pandemic corruption to the point that no man, woman, or young person could think one righteous thought. So God judged it. After giving the people of Noah's time 120 years to repent, God sent the flood. 
So God judged angels. He judged the people of Noah's day. Peter is making a case. If he did those two, he'll judge you too, but he's not done. He's going to finally talk about Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse six, turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes. Everybody say ashes. So this was a total incineration. He condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. Now, in this series, I've mentioned the Dead Sea a couple of times, how it receives water, but it doesn't redistribute it, hence it's dead. But you may not know that it just so happens the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah lie beneath the bitter waters of the Dead Sea. Where the Dead Sea is, it's on top of what used to be Sodom and Gomorrah. Appropriately so. When God decides to judge folks, it is total. And it is awesome. From time to time, God will make an example of a person or a nation to highlight what he thinks about certain sins. He made an example of Achan. Remember, Achan stole the forbidden thing, hid it under his bed in the tent, under the ground, buried it in the ground, and Joshua came to him and said, son, give God the glory. Did you steal it? And he revealed it, and the earth opened up and swallowed him and his family. And God made an example of Achan, that you do not take into your person a cursed thing. Then, uh, remember Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And they rebelled against Moses and Aaron's authority. And Moses said, I'll tell you what, you bring your family here to the tent of meeting tomorrow morning, and we'll just go to God with this in, in, in prayer. And they showed up. And Moses just looked up and said, God, show them who is your anointed and who isn't. And the ground opened up and swallowed Korah, Dathan, and Abiram and their families and all their goods whole and closed up again. God made an example. He didn't do that with everybody that rebelled against authority, but he made an example. And then we remember Ananias and Sapphira, don't we? They come walking into the uh, temple, and there's Simon Peter, full of the Holy Ghost. And they say, Simon, here's the money from the sale of our property like we told we were going to give you. And Simon had discernment, looked right at them, and said, why are you lying to the Holy Spirit? Ananias was, was first. Sapphira was out shopping. And she didn't know what was happening to her husband. She was spending some of the money they said they were giving the church. And, and Ananias fell dead. And as they were carrying him out, she came in. Peter said, did you, are you giving us everything? Did, did your husband give us everything? She said, yes. He said, why did you conspire to lie with your husband to the Holy Spirit? And she fell dead. Now, if God did that with all liars in church, we wouldn't have any church. <laughs> Come on. They told one lie. This is all the money. I mean, hey, this was serious. But from then on, you really prayed before you joined that church. Oh, I don't want to join the church. No, 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 no. I don't want to be a part of that group because if you tell a lie, you drop dead. But you see how God made an example of all those examples I just gave you. So he also made an example of Sodom and Gomorrah. Peter says, the overthrow of the pornographic and violent culture of Noah's time And the perverted culture of Sodom and Gomorrah stands side by side in Scripture. Peter tells us God made an example of the sexual perversion rampant in those twin cities. It was his showpiece of what he thinks of sodomy. 
There's no other way around it. Don't hear that today, do you? And if I went to a college campus and said that, I might not get out alive. Or even Washington, D.C., I might not get out alive. Our culture has become so brainwashed. It's worth remembering here that Jesus predicted the generation that saw his return would be both like Noah and Lot's time. So let's assume something. Based on Peter's words, the end times apostasy we now see coming into full flower, all the false teaching, all the false prophecy, the rampant perversion, and putting the seal of approval on it and calling it normal. All of that will be accompanied by the growth of abnormal, vile wickedness throughout the world. And we're seeing that right now happen in front of our eyes. When I started preaching in the 1970s, and the country I see now, they're not the same country. In, in one generation, not the same country. Now next, Peter turns to the subject of Lot. Let's move along. Abraham's nephew. And he says, God delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Here's Lot living in Sodom. He moved his family there, bought a house there, moved in. He started out just turning his tent in the direction of the city, but he eventually moved into the city, set up his business in the city, and made the city his home. Boy, did he pay a price because he was backsliding every step that he took. He was backsliding. Prior to sending his fierce wrath onto Sodom, God made a distinction, church, watch this, between the righteous and the wicked. He delivered righteous Lot from the fires of judgment. But he did the same with Noah, stating that Noah was a just man. God delivered Lot because though he had made a terrible mistake in moving his family into Sodom, he was right with God in his heart of hearts. But even so, because of his backsliding, the bad decisions he made, he lost his family, he lost his fortune, and he lost his friends in Sodom. He got out of Sodom by the skin of his chinny-chin-chin, and he took nothing with him. Peter says that Lot was tormented, vexed by the lawless, immoral lifestyles of the Sodomites. He both heard and saw things that tormented his soul. He heard the obscenities, the blasphemies, the anger, the rage of this vile culture. I feel like I'm describing America right there. He saw their bold and brazen perversions openly displayed without shame. And every day in hearing and seeing their lawless deeds, he was vexed. Anybody ever feel that way? Am I alone? Do you, do you feel that way when our culture can't seem to say a complete sentence without dropping a major curse word? It's like, can, can you say a complete sentence without dropping a major curse word? Is that, is that possible to you? Doesn't seem like it. And the worst ones. And, and you go, kids are listening. That used to matter. Oh, well. I could go on, but I got to move. God finally judged Sodom when sexual perversion was not just an alternative lifestyle, but was the lifestyle. Notice how God calls the homosexual lifestyle lawless. It's against natural law. That's what Peter called it, lawless. 
flying in the face of God's intent for the two genders. In light of Lot's deliverance from Sodom, Peter encourages the saints. Hey, saints, I know I'm dropping some heavy stuff on you, but I want you to know the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations. Amen. Can we give the Lord a hand of praise for that? The Lord knows how. He's saying, as God delivered Lot, he can also deliver you. That's what's going to happen in the rapture. God's going to distinguish the righteous from the wicked, and the righteous are going up. Amen. And God also knows how to deal with unrepentant, wicked men. Second half of verse 9, to, to reserve. He knows how to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. The day of judgment he's speaking of is the great white throne judgment revealed in Revelations 20, 11 to 15. It might seem as if they're getting away with their wicked behavior, but Peter says they are reserved. You've got to, people who don't repent have a reservation. They've got a reservation. Yesterday I made a reservation for Thanksgiving in a restaurant. Made a reservation. Got my name. It's got my phone number. I'm reserved for that restaurant. One place I don't want a reservation is the great white throne judgment and hell thereafter. But he says here they got a reservation. It's reserved. It's going to come as surely as the sun will rise tomorrow. Peter goes on to describe the extent of their lawlessness. Verse 10, we're almost done. Especially those who walk according to the flesh and the lust of uncleanness, and they despise authority. They are presumptuous, they are self-willed, and they're not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. Now, the wicked people in Peter's crosshairs here are living unbridled, filthy, immoral lives, and they despise authority. Now, the word despise here means to think lightly of something, to not take something seriously. These people, Peter is saying, have no fear of God's authority invested in people of position. Because the Bible says all authority comes from God. It comes from above. And he he invests his authority in people. And and these these wicked people that Peter is uh, talking about here don't take their authority seriously. Not the authority of police, not the authority of teachers, not the authority of government officials, not the authority of pastors, spiritual leaders. They don't, they, they hate authority. Amen. They're lawless. They even go far enough as to speak evil of dignitaries, Peter says. Now, a dignitary denotes the magnificence, the excellence, and the glory of those to whom praise and honor were due. This includes not only earthly people holding high positions of authority, but also, get this, heavenly beings. The wicked show no respect for God-given authority. They rail against dignitaries, both heavenly and earthly. They curse in the face of God's delegated authority. Boy, I could go on about that. You've heard me talk about these so-called comedians and comedians who I've heard say things, I just, I just wince, and I say, ooh, oh, no. I'll see a little YouTube clip in the news, and, and I'll, I'll see what they said. And, you know, Sarah Silverman, people like that. I'm sorry, if she's going to do it publicly, I'll say, I'll say her name. She, she's one of many. It's cursing Christ. Cursing what Jesus did for us. Mocking Christ. And I go, oh, Sarah. Because 
You're putting yourself right here, speaking evil of dignitaries. Even angels won't do this. And I'm closing with this verse. Peter says, you want to know what? Listen, even angels who are greater in power and might than people do not bring a reviling accusation against them being dignitaries before the Lord. The example is in Jude 9. This is my last verse. He says, Michael, one of the mightiest of the angels, one of the three archangels, when he was arguing with Satan about Moses' body after Moses died, God hid him in the mountains. And there literally was a battle between Satan and Michael, the archangel, over the body of Moses. I don't know what all that means, but I know the battle took place. And so here's Michael and Satan arguing over Moses' body. And it says, Michael did not dare to accuse even Satan or jeer at him, but simply said, the Lord rebuke you. Wicked people have no such wisdom. And I have found that in the church too. People come up right to me as a pastor, say things you should never say. Not any of you. You're in church on Wednesday night. I'm just saying through the years I've had it happen. There's no fear. There's no fear of delegated authority. There's no fear of God's authority. God help us all. Amen. Can we stand?